If you would take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. James 5, we'll get there in a minute. We'll also put it up in a couple of minutes. Just want to say that since, we, since the inception of Fondren Church, I've kept a running catalog of favorite names. Favorite names in their church family. See, I'm, I'm not blessed with a good name. It's just awfully generic. Robert Green. That's kind of dull, isn't it? And I wish I had a name like Wolf Blitzer, right? I could be, I could be in the situation room with breaking news. Like, are you like me and you're at home and you want to like read your Bible or do something good or make a call to a friend or love on your family, but there's Wolf Blitzer in the situation room with breaking news and you just can't, you can't turn it off, right? But I don't have a name like Wolf Blitzer, but I do appreciate good names. And in our church, we, one of my favorite names was a guy, uh, was a guy named Hudson Frisbee. Isn't that a cool name? Hudson came and he uh, met his girl here. They married. Now they live in Korea, South Korea, not North. Hudson and Sarah Frisbee. I love the names Durden Pillow. He's one of my best friends. He's here today. Durden Pillow. I tell people he's a pillar in our church. There's Stanton Troy. That's a great name. Uh, also, we have at Fonner Church, we have a Richard Petty. Shouldn't we buy a church van and let him be the driver, right? Full time. He'll go fast. He'll take left turns. Everybody would want to go on those trips. Uh, and we have... Unfortunately, a guy who played guitar on the stage, we have, we've got David Duke at Fondren Church. And David thought he was safe. He's a young man. He thought he was safe until the David Duke with the not so good name and reputation just surfaced in the news this week endorsing Donald Trump. Jennifer, uh, his wife, posted on social media last night, I think my husband needs to change his name. We'll have a name changing ceremony, David. Love you. Appreciate you. Hey, before James 5, I want to just real quickly tackle kind of a church family matter. Uh, in two weeks, we begin to have two services. We're going to have a week that we practice but before our college kids come back and all. But we're going to have a 930 service and 11 o'clock service beginning in two weeks. You'll see a, one more final video at the end of the service talking about that very thing. And I want to encourage you to, to take part and to jump in in our kids' ministry. We've been talking about that, but we need you. Now, I know some of you may think, oh, when you go to two services, we're, we're not all together anymore. And I kind of used to think that myself, but do you know that every time we have church here, that we're never all together? Because down the hall, there's a whole bunch of kids and a whole bunch of volunteers. And let me first say thank you to some of you, and you know who you are, and God knows who you are. You have served for two years here while we've just had one service, and you've been so faithful, and so often you've had to sacrifice and miss worship. And now as we go to two services, uh, I think it's everybody's opportunity to get to know more people at Fondren Church if that's your desire, especially if you jump in and serve on one of these serving teams. But you'll have the opportunity, like my wife and daughter who turns 15 in a couple of weeks, they're going to serve one hour and worship an hour. And we, I hope that some of you, that many of you will see us today. Laura will talk about it as we close our service, but we'll have three kiosks at every exit and a friendly face with some information about that will be there to welcome you. So I want to challenge you guys to pursue jumping in and helping us with our family ministry, our kids' ministry. I think it's very rewarding. And let me ask you, have you served? Some of you served? Just clap if you find it to be very rewarding. Just let us hear from you. Whoop and holler. And if you see somebody not clapping, go for them, all right? Go for them and get them. James chapter 5, just a couple of more sermons, including today as we wrap up this summer sermon series on James. James 5, 1 to 6, that's our text today. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who 
mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, a couple things come to my mind. Maybe they do for you when you read this. First of all, you may say, James, chill out. James, you need a vacation. Or I thought this week when I was studying, preparing this, James, you need a hammock. Some of you know that Wednesday was National Hammock Day. James, you need a hammock. You need to be suspended in front of, you know, between two trees or posts on uh, some net or something and just sway and swing and relax. You need a simpler, more easy lifestyle. You need to cut out the intensity. James, you need a hammock. Maybe you're, you feel that way when you read this verse because it just seems like it's a harsh tone, like it's strong language. The second thing that I think we think, and it's easy for us to come today as we see this and dismiss it because James says, come now what? you rich. And it's easy to sit here today and say, well, I'm struggling. So this verse, it's not for me. How many of you, you know, this is a trick question. How many of you are rich? Do you know that if you make $14,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the world? If you make $25,000 a year, you're in the top 2%. You may not be Oprah rich. In fact, you're not Oprah rich. God, I pray that you would give Fondra and somebody that's Oprah rich. (laughs) Ain't no babies about it. You're not Oprah rich, nor am I. Let me ask you, how many of you are rich? So let's don't dismiss this today. This is a passage that we we can't check out of. Uh, James has got something for us here. We, We can't dismiss it. And what do we see here? We see in James him saying, come now. Come now, you who are rich. You know that this past year, more Americans filed for bankruptcy than graduated high school. Do you know that the average American each and every year spends 8% more than they earn? You know that 50% of Americans, if they lose their job, they would only be able to cover one month's expenses. You know that 70% of Americans die without leaving behind a will. Thus, they leave behind all their earthly possessions to the very efficient federal government. Note sarcasm. Do you know that the federal government, your government and I, and I say this at the height of a political year, But you know that our federal government has less money on hand than Apple Computer. Look at this staggering figure here. It's literally, as you can see, we barely could put it on the screen. Everybody knows what that is, right? That's our, what is it? It's not the distance between the earth and the sun. It's our deficit. That is, no matter who you're voting for, that is the number that our country owes to foreign banks. I read this this week about debt. Look at this. Debt is, I don't know if you have any, debt is a result of giving ourselves what God hasn't given us yet. Ouch. 
silence intended. Debt is the result of giving ourselves what God hasn't given us yet. I read this a couple of months ago and wrote it down. It says this about the modern American. The modern American is a person who drives a bank financed car over a bond financed highway on credit card gas to open up a charge at a department store so that he can fill his savings and loan financed house with installment purchased furniture. That's us. You gotta throw, I gotta throw a Dave Ramsey in here, right? If your outgo exceeds your income, then your upkeep is gonna be your downfall. Leave that up for a moment if you would, Warren. If your outgo exceeds your income, then your upkeep is going to be your downfall. You've heard him say that on the radio, hadn't you? Dave Ramsey, who's cousins of our very own Marshall Ramsey. You may say today, when James says, come now, you're rich, I can check out. But I submit to you today that you are rich, proportionally to the globe. And I say to you today that all of us have a bent in our hearts toward thinking so wrongly about wealth, about what it can afford and, and what it can't. James's language is harsh, isn't it? See, when you do what we're doing this summer, you're, you're pre- you preach through a book, uh, we're not going to avoid this passage. I stand before you today and just read it, and it, seems, it just seems harsh. But I tell you, James doesn't need a hammock. He doesn't need a vacation. He doesn't need to be one of those guys saying, hunting and fishing and loving every day, right? I mean, sometimes we need a strong tone. In harsh language. Why? Because you and I need the truth. And we need the truth in this area. God talks about money because God God talks about money because He cares about you. He loves you. And He knows the bent of our hearts. Paul, in that stretch, stretch of scripture that says the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. He says, those who want to get rich. They fall into temptation and a trap and to many foolish and harmful desires. People plunge to their ruin and to their destruction. And those who want wealth, he goes on to say in 1 Timothy 6, chapter 10, those who want wealth, who are eager for money, they have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. One of the easiest things to do as a preacher or orator, public speaker, politician, is to stand in front of a group of people like you today and give statistics about wealth and debt and money. It's it's like shooting fish in a barrel, as they say. And it's just easy to see that our culture and you and I are unwittingly part of this culture at times. But we, you and I, the church, the ones who are called to live differently, The ones James says, or we are to hear the word. And by the way, the Bible has so much to say about spending, about saving, and about giving. And it's really clear, but we're prone in our own way to fall into temptations and in traps and to foolish and harmful desires. And like other people around us, we plunge into our own ruin and destruction. How long can a person go spending 8% more every year than what they earn? What's the end game to that? What about James and the rich? James says, if you've been following along with us or you know this letter, James says in chapter 1, he talks about how the sun, it rises with its scorching heat 
and it withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so too the rich man uh, fades away in his pursuit of wealth, James 1. James chapter 2, has not God chosen what? The rich, no, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom to come? Is James against the rich? It, It would seem like it. But here's the thing. James is not dealing with actual wealth. He's dealing with your attitude toward wealth. Consider this text today. James says, come now. We mentioned last week that that's the ancient version of, come on, man. And James is saying, come now. Harken back to chapter 4 and verse 13. We, we read that. We talked about it last week. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such city and we'll spend a year there and we'll engage in trade and we'll make a profit. We said last week, there's nothing wrong with saying I will. There's nothing wrong. You don't have to tag the phrase on if the Lord wills to every single sentence. I don't think that's the idea. James isn't against planning, but he's against planning without God. He's against calling all the shots and acting like that it will be done. Nothing wrong with living a little bit of, with a little bit of confidence. But the brash, bold swagger that many of us live with has to melt under the sovereignty of God. In, in chapter 4, verse 13 and following last week, when we read the come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will do this, we talked about the brevity of life, didn't we? And we talked about the humility that we really don't know what tomorrow brings. And that segues into chapter 5 in James again Come now. And he says what? Look down if your Bible's open. Come now what? Come now and weep and howl. And that weep in the Greek verb tense is an aorist active imperative. In other words, it's urgent. That word howl there is a present active participle. In other words, it's ongoing. It's an urgent ongoing thing that James is calling us to. Why? Because of the way they were living. Not their actual wealth so much but their attitude toward wealth. And in the time that we have, I want to point you to three things that James says you're erring on. I've got them up for you here. You're hoarding, they're hoarding their riches, verses 2 and 3. They're cheating others, verse 4. They're living selfishly, verse 5. He uses the, the term fat in verse 5, that idea of not being lean. I believe God's called us to a leaner lifestyle. I believe God has called us to be a lean church. I've met with a church planter this week over coffee and he's going out west to start a church and I've talked to him about how important it is to inspire the trust and confidence of people for your church to be a generous church, to be lean. And James is saying far from being lean, you're consuming and acquiring and spending for yourself. They hoarded their riches. In James's day, first century Jerusalem and beyond, the reading region where these 12 tribes were scattered, there were a few ways, few indicators of wealth. The first is grain, okay? It could be stored in large bins or silos. And then there's clothing, and then there's silver, and there's gold. And James teaches here, in fact, I'd love for you to do this, those of you who want to go the extra mile in your reading and studying. As you read the book of James, this letter, and read Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And you'll see many times over, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is alluding to what Jesus taught in the great Sermon on the Mount. Have any of you picked up on that? And James is teaching here that food, that the grain that you store, 
in large bins and silos that it can rot. Food rots. Clothes can be eaten by moths. Precious metals can rust. The message to us is are we hoarders? Some of you have watched that show on A&E. Isn't that just a compellingly disgusting show? Uh, If anybody lives that way, please see us afterwards, right? We have a counselor on duty, but there's just something. Psychological surveys say that the more you give away and the more you throw away, hear me now, the happier you are. If you're a hoarder, get help. My wife and I and our family, we've made a few cross-country moves in our day, and it's helped us to see what do we really value and what do we just simply need to toss. And James is saying in verse 2 and 3 that you're hoarding things. Your grain, your clothing. Now, I did an interesting study this week, just kind of a panoramic idea of clothing in the Bible. Because I was thinking about this idea of, you know, what kind of clothes should we wear? How many clothes should we have? I have a seminary professor back in the day, Dr. Stephen Nicholas. He would show up in class every, it was a Monday through Friday class, and every single day he would wear khaki pants, the loafers with the short sleeve blue button down. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Now, he, Friday. He claimed that he had a couple of different pairs, but he would wear, it's just, he just wanted to live a simple lifestyle. Look at a few passages. I've selected a few about clothing in the Bible because grain, clothing, gold and silver are mentioned many times together. Uh, to each of them, Genesis 45, 22, to each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and what? And five sets of clothes. Woo! Judges chapter 14. Let me tell you a riddle. Samson said to them, if you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Next pass is 2 Kings 5. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Throughout the Bible, you can see the mention over and over. And that if someone had more than a set or two of clothes, they were considered rich. 1 Timothy 6, Paul said, I've learned contentment. If I have food and clothing, that's enough. James is saying the church of Jesus is called to be lean. It's called to be generous. It's not about acquiring and consuming. It's about giving. It's about living differently. How much do we really need? The second thing he talks about is cheating others. We see it, God sees it, as an injustice. Do you? Church, I want to say that some of you are really charged up in this political season. I'm not telling you not to be. In fact, I understand one of the candidates, I, I, I saw at the convention this week, that one of the candidates is, is promising to make a move that people like me who preach in front of congregations can talk about their political views with greater freedom. I think we're just going to preach the Bible here. But I do want to tell you that we're to... We're to clothe the naked. We're to feed the hungry. We're to care for the sick. We're to go to the prisons. And as we do it to the least, we do it to Jesus. There are injustices in this world. 
I watched a fight on social media take place when someone was calling out the NBA commissioner for moving the All-Star game in 2017 from Charlotte related to the bathroom laws. We used to not have bathroom laws. Anybody remember those days? I say go in the woods. That's what I say. Just go in the woods. But someone was fighting about that, saying it was a liberal left-wing move and blah, blah, blah. And look at the NBA, and they have apparel. They manufacture apparel in countries where children are child laborers, right? And it was this arguing, this calling out. And we take sides. But I want to say as believers, we've got to take the side of justice. And we've got to make sure we go to people in need. And we've got to make sure we look. Despite our political penchant, we've got to make sure that we care for the marginalized as Jesus would. And let us lead the way. Deuteronomy 24, look at this passage. James is repeating something that has been on God's heart since the beginning of time. Never take advantage of poor and destitute laborers. Whether they are fellow Israelites or, listen, whether they are fellow Israelites or foreigners living in your town. You must pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. If you don't, they might cry out to the Lord against you and it would be counted against you as sin. They lived large. They lived selfishly. I've said this before to our church family, but I've never met any of you who've learned the graceful art of giving And you've regretted it. Okay, I know I'm repeating this for some of you, but I've never met, I never met anybody, a believer in Jesus, anybody that said, oh man, I I, I so regret supporting those water wells in Africa. Man, I hate that I sent that check. I, I just so regret giving so that our team could go to Cambodia. They're coming back today. I just regret that. But I've met many of you who regret the house, the purchase, the car, the boat, the extra home. Right? I'm telling y'all, when Jesus said, Happy, happier is the, those who give rather than receive, I'm telling you, it's true. It's confirmed and corroborated by every psychological, sociological, religious study known to man. Learning to move away from ourselves. Have you ever had the opportunity to sit down with someone of great wealth and you look at them and you see in their face, like they're wearing it on their face, their busyness, their stress, their bitterness, and their emptiness? Yesterday, to support one of our young congregates, one of our friends here, I drove to Batesville to attend a funeral. And on the way to Batesville, I was hustling to get there, may or may not have been speeding, but I, when I, as I was hustling to get there, I noticed uh, close to the exit, as you got closer to Memphis, a picture of uh, young Elvis. Elvis Presley died at 42, 43. Fact check me on that. Shout it out if you care. He said this. I would give $1 million to anyone who could give me one minute of peace. Y'all know how he died. If you're young and you don't, ask somebody older than you. 
He said that not long before that fateful day of his death. Anybody in this room, especially young people, minute apiece or a million dollars, whoo. You know that psychologists have studied happiness. I mean, they have studied happiness. I was reading this week in Psychology Day, University of Illinois study, said that acquiring and consuming and a life focused on that leads to very little contentment. University of Michigan study in psychology today recently said that there is a trait, there is a virtue that's most linked to your happiness. Want to guess what it is? Think about it. A virtue, a trait that is most linked to your happiness. It, it, turn to the person next to you and get, give a mention of virtue. What, what do you think it would be? Ready? Forgiveness. And this Michigan psychology professor called it the queen of all virtues, but probably the hardest to come by. If you're here today or you know someone, something happened, and you can't let it go or they can't let it go, it's not happiness. Happiness is not in our acquisition and in our consumption. My daughter Haley, sandwiched between her two brothers, as I mentioned earlier, she turns 15 in just a few weeks. She gave me permission to tell you the following story. I did not observe National Hammock Day Friday. You know why? I don't have a hammock. But I did observe National, I believe it was Wednesday, National Junk Food Day. Anybody know that? Man, I, it was at the end of the day, I was about to leave the office walking out in the back parking lot and I learned by looking at my phone that it was National Junk Food Day and I thought, I gotta honor this day. And immediately, my brain works really fast, immediately I, real, I knew how I was gonna do it. Susan, I recall the day before, had bought these, I don't, some of you know this, those white Danish wedding cookies, pink box, little white cookies. Oh, anybody know what I'm talking about? Oh, I've, I've loved them since my childhood and then I went like 20 years without them. But Susan, out of nowhere, bought them. And I was driving home. It's only seven-tenths of a mile from my park, the parking lot here to my home. And I, I, the whole seven-tenths of a mile, I'm thinking, man, I know what I'm doing. And I marched, she can tell you, I marched into that kitchen, past everybody, and I went into the pantry and I came out with the look of dejection. And Susan was there at the sink and she turned around and she goes, you looking for the cookies? Said, Haley got them. <laughs> Took them in a room. They're probably gone. <laughs> My posture, Susan can tell you. I mean, I wanted these things. Like, wanted them. And I turned, my mood turned from sadness to anger. Those were my cookies. And I marched to Haley's room and I opened the door just like I did to the pantry. Disregard to anybody. And I saw the box. And I walked toward the box and I picked it up and it didn't weigh much, but there were four Danish wedding cookies. And Haley said over and over, no, no, dad, dad, don't, dad, don't, no, dad, dad, no. 
in total disregard to my sweet daughter, I took those four cookies and I just put them right into my mouth. And she was mad at me for eating the last four and I was mad at her for eating the 20 before that. Like literally, dad, like seriously, like literally, like I can't literally, seriously, like literally, I seriously, literally, like can't literally believe you literally, seriously, like literally ate those. Y'all have teenage daughters, anybody? Y'all know that's what was said verbatim. I said to her, I'll buy more. When? I'll buy them tonight. No, you won't. <laughs> Several hours had passed. I was crashing on the couch, watching a little politics like some of you. And she comes in and we exchanged some conversation. She goes, yep, yeah, you're not getting the cookies, are you? You said you'd get them. Guess that makes you a liar. <laughs> Can I tell you, that just kind of hung over me. I grabbed my keys and went to Kroger and got us some white Danish wedding cookies, midnight milk and cookies. And you know it's in the heart of a father to give. God, your father, wants to be trustworthy in your life. It's in the heart of a father to teach their kids about being givers. I did an inductive word study slash search this week of the word give in all the Bible. And the word give is followed most often by four adverbs. These four. I got them for you. Cheerfully, sacrificially, generously, regularly. Proverbs chapter 3. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do. Everywhere you go, he's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume that you know it all. Run to God. Run from evil. Your body will glow with health. Your very bones will vibrate with life. Honor God. That, by the way, that's Solomon's allusion to happiness. If you want to be happy, learn to be a giver. Honor God with everything you own. Give him the first and the best. Your barns will burst. Your wine vats will brim over. But don't, dear friend, resent God's discipline. On and on, Scripture teaches us the value of learning to be a giver. Cheerfully, sacrificially, generously, and regularly. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Learn to give. Learn to give. God long ago instituted something called the tithe. And this is that part. We've only got a few minutes left. This is the part of the sermon where it starts to get awkward, right? I love the, the preachers tell an old story about there was this mom and dad and little boy and the little toddler boy swallowed a quarter. And the mom says, oh, quick, call 911. And the dad says, no, let's call the preacher. They can get money out of anybody. <laughs> like, where's the love, huh? Long ago, God instituted something called the tithe. And when Jesus came, 
For some people, it's a matter of dispute. If you'd love to debate this, I'm available. But Jesus came and he said, I didn't come to abolish the law and prophets. I came to fulfill them. Jesus never came and said, don't tithe. He taught a new way and a different way and a better way, but he fulfilled that tithe. And to me, that means I think you don't think, oh, let me just do that, but let me even possibly exceed that. The greatest motivator of giving is not so much give so that it will come back to you, but it's give because you've been given too. I don't know if we can go back to Deuteronomy 14, verse 23. But it says the following. The reason for the tithe, the reason for the tithe is that you will learn, here's what it says, the reason for the tithe is that you will learn to put God first in your life. Isn't it something, there's just something about money? Something about money, one pastor I admire says that money, it's a tool or it's a drug. And God desires for you and I to learn as Christ's followers to see its usefulness as a tool. To see what it can do in our lives. And as we learn to give cheerfully, sacrificially, generously, and regularly, we open up a door for God's great work. The manifold grace of God to be demonstrated in our lives. When we began our church, we prayed that God would provide so that we could exist and that we could be a vessel and a conduit of his grace. And I want to thank so many of you for being givers. And I want to encourage you to excel all the more, as Paul would say, in the grace of giving. We ourselves are trying to make this year amidst some great difficulty financially. We're trying to make this our best year of giving ever. Excel all the more in the grace of giving. Probably the middle of the spring of 2017, which will be here like that, if we continue our current pace of tithes and offerings coming in and what's going out, we will reach a point in probably April of 2010, my best estimate, that the money that Fondren Church has given away to our local partners, to our global partners, to benevolent needs, to help single moms and families in our community, we will reach $1 million in just five and a half years. When we came here to this building, they appraised this building at about $5 million, and we knew that we'd have to put a couple of million into it. And as soon as we pay off that note, I believe more money will be able to be given away to be a lean church and a God-honoring church. If today you're here and you're hurting and you're strapped, I want to say learn to be a giver. Learn to put God first. Learn to put God first in your giving. A couple of points in closing I want to say as relates to James 5 and the wealth. The first is I want to challenge you to forget about comparing. Make a covenant today. Pray a prayer, Lord, and keep it in front of you. Lord, I'm going to be happy for those who are doing well. And I'm going to help those who are hurting and poor. Forget about comparing. I read yesterday that contentment begins where comparison ends. 
I'll say that again. Contentment begins where comparison ends. I don't know who to attribute that to. Somebody tell me later. What a great statement. What a Jesus-like statement. What a James-like statement. Instead of hoarding, hoarding, instead of cheating, instead of living selfishly, learn to be a giver. Learn to give away. I want us to close this message as our worship team makes their way up. I want to close our message a little different. Do we have Matthew 6 up in the message? We do. Um, I, want us to, I want you to stand. And I shared with you earlier how James, chapters 1 through 5, uh, mirrors in so many ways uh, much of the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And it certainly does in James 5. I want us to read this together. Now, I'll put up the message. Some of you might criticize me for that. I, I, I love the ESV. I, I, that's my study Bible. It's what I preach from. It's line by line. The NIV is phrase by phrase. The message, it's kind of a loose paraphrase. But I think it's healthy for us to read the Bible in a variety of different passages. Would you, as we close our service, would you... In a second, read this along with me aloud. And as you read it, just pray that God will work it into you. Let's go. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you will most want to be and end up being.